0: What's up and welcome to Clarity for Parents of Athletes, bringing you stories from professional athletes about their parents and how they were raised. My name is Gabe Nocer from aclearmind.com. All right, and welcome to episode number 48. As always, I want to thank you for listening to this episode and any other episodes that you've listened to in the past. And if you haven't by chance, I strongly recommend that you do. There's some amazing interviews with some incredible athletes about their journeys and there's also other episodes with informative people such as the one today and I'm just going to jump right into that one. This one is with Adam Krauss who is a PhD candidate in psychology at UC Berkeley. Now Adam works with Professor Matthew Walker who wrote the book Why We Sleep and I read that book and that's why I reached out to Adam because I was just really amazed with the amount of information on there and I said, you know what, this also can really help parents to listen to and and to benefit their children of course in sports performance but really health performance as well. So Adam and Dr. Walker work at the Center for Human Sleep Science, and Adam's educational background is in philosophy and cognitive science from UC Berkeley and is currently working on multidisciplinary techniques to examine the impact of sleep deprivation on human health and brain function. And he's really interested in the physiology of pain, something that a lot of athletes, if not all athletes experience, of course. And also is interested in the interplay between sleep and the immune system. So really important things for you as a parent, for all the athletes out there, for anybody really in general. So we cover a lot in this interview, including the amount of sleep that people need both as a child and adolescent because it is a little bit different. Uh, And of course, it's a little bit different for adults as well. We also talk about the different types of sleep, something called sleep paralysis, proper use of melatonin, And the importance of sleep on recovery, which is obviously a really, really important topic for all athletes. Now, I'm just going to leave you with a quick takeaway at the end. So please make sure after Adam and I sign off to just tune in for a little bit of my conclusion where I tie in the most impactful thing from the interview with Adam. All right. Enjoy. All right, Adam. Thanks so much for joining me today. You are in Berkeley, California. What's your last uh, your experience for the last few months? For you, been
1: like? Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. It's been crazy a little bit. You know, it's uh, <laughs> we are all stuck at home uh, wearing masks, and uh, to be perfectly honest, life is a bit monotonous. It's this crazy oscillation between utter boredom and monotony working from home every day. <laughs> and then just the, the stress and uh, high activation whenever you have to go outside to the grocery store. It's a unique time.
0: Yeah, I could imagine with that stress, then there comes the need to make sure you're still getting adequate sleep. And that's what this episode's all about. So how are you handling your own personal sleep right now?
1: well i'm I'm lucky in some ways uh I've personally never really struggled with insomnia uh although uh anxiety will sometimes interfere with it so you know uh, for, from my own personal experience, my sleep issues if and when I have them, are with falling asleep and that has so it's taken me longer to fall asleep as you get just sort of this rapid thinking at night. And that that's very common among people. And actually, you know, there there have been some recent uh, sort of retrospective studies about the effect of the pandemic or really sort of shelter in place orders on sleep. And it's actually uh, very interesting. And it's had a huge impact on people's sleep for a couple of reasons. So you see sort of a bimodal effect actually where a group of people are reporting better sleep and then a group of people are reporting worse sleep. People who are sleeping worse, it's a variety of things, but a lot of it is, as I said earlier, related to just this constant stress and anxiety. They're just sort of activated and they're having trouble sleeping. The people who are sleeping better, I think to me is so interesting because it tells us a lot about uh, policy and how that, can be altered to improve sleep and therefore health. So the people who are sleeping better are uh, sleeping longer, but not by a huge amount. But what's really changed is when they're sleeping and the quality of that sleep. And one of the biggest reasons why is they're all working from home now so they don't have to commute. Uh, In the Bay Area, it's particularly Mm. bad where some people have these three-hour commutes, two-hour commutes one way. and that erodes on sleep time. It's probably one of the biggest impacts uh, on sleep in, in the working adult population. So people are going to bed earlier uh, and they're, they're waking up earlier and the quality of their sleep is better uh, because, well, at least for this group of people, they're less stressed. They don't have to wake up early to commute or stay late because of a long commute. Um, and the quality of their sleep has been improving because they're getting this Regularity in their sleep that they didn't have before with they're working from home all the time, so they they are able to say well you know it's it's ten it's eleven o'clock i'm I'm free to go to sleep now when I'm tired rather than having all this uh, these issues in life interfering with that timing so which that and that this regularity is one of the most important things in the the quality of the sleep mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and that's a good point that you made. Now they don't have to wake up two to three hours earlier to go to work, so they're not thinking of that ahead of time, right? So the, the quality of sleep improves just because they don't have the stress of the commute, as you mentioned.
1: Yeah, good point. So it's the stress of the commute, being in traffic, is one of the most unpleasant things, but it's also just the, <laughs> the time, the time that it takes. Uh, so if People work an eight-hour day, and in the Bay Area, a two-hour commute is not abnormal, you know that's two hours one way, so that's four hours plus eight-hour workday. That's a 12-hour workday. And then imagine you have to mm-hmm. make time if you have kids or to cook or to even just sort of have any kind of life. All of that just sort of erodes on either side uh, in, in sleep. So the overall point, and this is one that I've, I've always tried to make whenever people ask me sort of what can we do at a, at a policy standpoint for sleep is, is that well, it's a difficult thing to really take home. It's that the economic system that we live in, uh, the way it's organized, really is the most detrimental thing to our sleep. Now, there's lots of little things we can do personally. We can reduce light, for example. We can have good regular sleep habits. But the most powerful thing we can do is really... uh, sort of shorten the workday in some ways or make room for sleep in other ways if that's sort of more remote work for example with less commuting uh and, and maybe we'll talk about this later but changing school start times is a big topic um, in the sort of sleep policy field is improving the length and quality of sleep and having all these other um, impacts on um, school performance
0: mm-hmm and I imagine sports performance as well with the youth. And I'm, gl- I'm glad that you mentioned that. And I think maybe you know, it's good to hear from somebody like you who's an expert in this field. What are How long should people be sleeping if they're adults, if they're adolescents, and if they are children?
1: Okay. So there's a couple points to make first. So sleep need uh, is actually not an incredibly easy thing to define. In general, the way that it's defined is that you you look at a a group of people and you ask them, what is their habitual sleep? And then you get some outcome measures. Those are usually cognitive outcome measures. So like reaction times is sort of one of the standards. And you just see how that reaction time improves or worsens based on sleep for a given age group. So these are sort of what, what this is. This is operationalization of sleep need in one particular domain now sleep is for the whole body so the amount of sleep you might need for getting optimal reaction times might actually not necessarily and we don't really know the answer here be the 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 uh, right amount of sleep you would need for cardiovascular or immune health so there's all these systems interacting so these are maybe just the headline it's just that these are loose guidelines The second thing is that sleep need changes drastically throughout the the lifespan. In general, it follows kind of uh, like a negative uh, exponential function. So just loosely, you need more sleep when you're younger than when you're older. It's it's not linear. So children, maybe less than 8, 10 years old, uh, maybe even just puberty and earlier, uh, easily need around nine hours of sleep. Sometimes it's more than that, but less than that uh, is probably not optimal. And there's a lot of reasons why, but one major reason is that there's just so much brain development going on uh, that actually over evolution, uh, this increased pressure to sleep when you're very young has been selected to really ramp up the processes of of plasticity in the brain and learning and forming these neural pathways. So that's young children. Adolescents are actually a, a unique um, time of life with regards to sleep. And I still need a, a lot of sleep, and, and the recommendations have changed, but they are anywhere from eight to nine hours for these to be sort of uh, around puberty to teenagers or maybe even early 20s. There are individual differences, but uh, anywhere in eight to nine hours is, is probably right. That's in terms of duration. Now, we'll, I think we'll probably want to talk about this later. There are the, the sort of peripubertal years are a, a unique period because not only do they have this increased sleep need, but they have this shift in the timing of their sleep. Um, so maybe we'll get into that later, but... As you age, you actually get into this period of maybe young or mid-adulthood. This is maybe 25 years to 35 or 40. This is probably the most stable period of life for sleep, where uh, most recommendations are from seven to eight and a half hours. In general, more is better, but it is actually pretty hard to sleep more than what you need so if you can get more and it feels good, you, you should probably do it is kind of the, the general advice. Now, at the end of life, maybe starting around age 40, but really starting to accelerate after 65 uh, years of age, you do see this decrease in sleep duration, um, where older adults often report getting anywhere from five to seven hours of sleep. Now, this is a, this is a point of contention in the field right now this reduced sleep that you see in older adults, is it really uh, that older adults have reduced sleep need or do they, the alternate explanation is that older adults have uh, a deteriorated capacity to produce sleep. So they're actually just not able to get the sleep that they would benefit from. So this is, this is up for debate, but in general, older adults sleep um, less than any other period during their life, but they, they, They still benefit from getting extra sleep if they can get it. Mm -hmm.
0: So that's really interesting um, what you said about the reaction time. And obviously with athletes, reaction time is very, very important. Have you read any studies or performed any studies about optimal sleep and reaction time as far as athletes go?
1: Um, So reaction times are the gold standard and the the traditional measure of the impact of sleep deprivation. Um, The reason why being that there's just an enormous literature in psychology on the distribution of reaction times uh, across age and and across the day, for example, Uh, they aren't necessarily the most representative of really what's going on. With sleep loss. So for just for an example, and I'll come back to talking about reaction time. Uh, one hour of sleep loss a night may not really have a, much of an impact on reaction time. But as you accumulate that one hour of sleep loss across a week, across a month or a lifetime, that has enormous impacts on cardiovascular health, immune health, uh, and brain health. So that's all to say that reaction time is... A Good easy proxy for how your sleep is, but it's not uh, It's not representative that makes sense. It doesn't it doesn't represent all the impacts So the 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 studies in sleep deprivation and reaction time uh, generally show One one pattern although there there are exceptions to this in general though you You don't necessarily see a slowing of reaction time. You do to an extent, but it's actually relatively minor. So people mostly react with the same speed to a stimulus. And these stimuli, the way that these are studied in psychology, uh, we use a test called the the PVT, uh, the psychomotor vigilance task. It's very simple little task where you you just look at a screen you have two buttons and as soon as a light comes on you press the button and this light comes on at sort of semi-random intervals so you have to maintain that vigilance and respond as quickly as possible so the outcomes that you get from this task are the reaction time in milliseconds uh you get the number of hits versus misses so if you responded at all that's a hit if you didn't respond that's a miss Um, sleep deprivation Increases the number of misses But what it does is it does this in like a sort of a semi-random way increases the variability of these responses. So you're not Consistent there's you can think of it as like an oscillation of your attention Where for a few seconds or a minute? You might really be focused on the task and your performance could look exactly as if you had slept perfectly well the night before uh, and then you kind of lapse into poor performance where you're missing them or you or you're only getting every other one um every other stimuli so you see this increase in the or in the variance of your responses
0: so you know one thing that i think a lot of people don't understand is is missing an hour or two a night consistently can really have an effect on your reaction time and and other things as well. And I think maybe, I think it's important for people to understand what sleep actually does for you. So could you describe a little bit more about that? What are the, the biological benefits and the cognitive benefits to sleeping?
1: Yeah. So this is a huge, uh, a huge question, actually. Um, Mm -hmm. the reason why is that sleep impacts every single system in the brain, every single system in the body. Uh there, there are reasons why um, and sort of theories uh, for really the general function of sleep. We can get into those if you, if you want. Yeah, Some of please. Them are A little bit more uh, philosophical or, or evolutionary. But the way I think about it is that sleep um, is not a unitary process. Sleep is actually, uh, it sort of sits a level above all the processes in the body, normal processes in the body and the brain and what it does is it coordinates them okay so it it says the these collection of activities you know just for example changes in the immune system changes in uh neuroplasticity these are going to occur together in concert at this period of time uh maybe early in the night during sleep and then selects a different set of processes to coordinate and act in concert at a later part of the night. So sleep and and wakefulness actually act together to kind of segregate functions so that they work efficiently. Okay. So this is why sleep is sort of a global phenomenon. It affects everything in the brain and the body. There's not a single system that's not affected by getting enough sleep in a positive way and, and and in a negative way by not getting enough sleep. Mm -hmm. more specifically in the brain the, the traditional sort of saying one of the major uh leaders and in, in sleep founders of sleep science said the sleep is for the brain and by the brain he said this because this is where sleep is generated it's generated by the brain it has the most acute impacts on brain function but it, re- it really is for the whole body so in the brain the first thing sort of to, to go if you take out sleep is the attention system okay? This system is what's what's uh, being measured when you do these reaction time tasks. So it, it is actually the most sensitive to sleep loss. In other words, if you just take away an, an hour or two of sleep, you'll notice the biggest impact here before you notice it. For example, things like uh, mood or anxiety or or even memory. All of these are impacted by sleep, but there's there's just a little bit more resilient. Attention is the most sensitive. Hmm. Um, What's going on exactly in terms of the brain, these attention networks in the brain is still being explored, Uh, but it has a lot to do with neuroplasticity and the efficiency of uh, communication networks within the brain. Now, there are actually two stages of sleep, two general stages of sleep and they're, they're not very cleverly named. One is uh, REM or rapid eye movement sleep. This is sometimes called dreaming sleep. And then there's the uh, great name of non-rapid eye movement <laughs> sleep, which is just not that. So these actually occur in, in cycles. And on average across the night, they'll, they'll cycle on a 90 minute oscillation. Uh, but this, this is not sort of a evenly distributed oscillation in other words what I, what I mean by that is you get most of your non-REM sleep in the first half of the night and most of your REM sleep in the second half of the night so one of the more recent theories of what sleep is doing or what these specific stages of, of sleep are doing for memory but also the attention systems is that non-REM and REM sleep are working in concert and it's actually this cycling of these two stages that's most important. So non-REM sleep, what you get early in the night, really increases neuroplasticity or the, or the, the remapping of brain networks. So the way to think about this is that when you're awake, you actually form all these connections between all sorts of new things that you've learned throughout the day. So every, everything becomes more connected in the brain while you're awake. Now, the theory of what non rem sleep is doing is that it's selecting out of that new, you know, tangle of connections, what are the most important ones, and it strengthens those that are important and it weakens those that are less important. So that's so not, so it was long believed that this uh, non REM sleep was for memory because it does this, but more recent studies have shown that actually you need both non REM and REM to get the best benefit to brain fun- cognitive and brain function. Um, REM sleep after non REM sleep strengthens important memories, REM sleep stabilizes them. So it, uh, it reactivates memories. Um, that have been previously selected by non-REM sleep and stabilizes them, reconnects them with other memories so that they become more stable, less subject to forgetting. Uh, and whenever I'm talking about memory, I'm really talking about brain networks. So this applies equally to the attention systems. So non-REM and REM work together to really optimize the efficiency of brain networks and how communication is passed to. uh, uh, across the brain and how it's, how it's processed and represented. So it's in concert, non-REM and REM, they work together to really optimize um, brain network efficiency. And that's really why attention is so sensitive because attention works with a tiny amount of data. It's very sensitive to how uh, efficient a network is processing the data because it does it so quickly and with so little information.
0: Mm-hmm. So wh- how long are the cycles of REM sleep and non-REM sleep and what do you start with and what do you usually end with during your sleep
1: So non-REM sleep uh is actually divided into three or or sometimes four stages doesn't really matter which this, there's a tradition here uh, you can say three stages so as you fall asleep as you first put your head down on the pillow you go into what's called non-REM stage one, which is really not quite sleep. It's a transition stage where uh, you're not really conscious anymore. but you haven't, your brain state hasn't really transitioned fully into a new sleep like state. So this is a relatively short state. It's a transition state. And as you fall deeper into sleep, you go into stage two non-REM sleep. Uh, stage two, happy to talk about in more detail it, it's a it's a, a unique state uh characterized by these oscillation called sleep spindles which are these sort of rhythmic bursts of activity that is coordinated between different parts of the brain so they are the hallmark feature of stage two non-rem sleep You'll uh, early in that you'll stay in stage two for a good amount but you'll cycle in and out of stage two and stage three which is the deepest stage of non-rem sleep that's where you see these large coordinated oscillations uh, where brain uh, neurons are acting in concert where they all activate at once and they all go quiet at once in these huge slow waves. And so non-narm sleep is characterized by these slow waves in brain activity. That's where a lot of these plasticity processes I was talking about earlier occur. So you get most of this stage three and and, and um, stage two non-REM sleep in the first half of the night. So if you're sleeping eight hours, the first four hours, but you will cycle out of stage three non-REM back into stage two and then up into REM sleep. And REM sleep is a unique state. It's it's actually more similar to being awake than it is to uh, being asleep in terms specifically non-REM sleep. If you just look at the activity of the brain, uh, it looks like you're awake. Hmm. Um, so it's a unique state. It's highly activated. Okay. Your body is paralyzed. So if I'm looking at someone in the, in a bed, uh, and they're in REM, I couldn't tell you whether, you know, what their brain is doing. Could They obviously look like they're deeply asleep. But when I put my EEG electrodes on their head, um, it would look exactly as if they were awake and behaving other than the fact that they're not moving. So there's this, the, the non REM REM cycling is a cycling of sort of quiescence and these deep oscillations and uh, very sort of disorganized active wake-like activity during non REM sleep. So these cycle on average nine, every 90 minutes, the, this cycling occurs throughout the night when you wake up in the morning you're most likely to wake up out of out of rem sleep which like i said occurs there's a greater prevalence of rem sleep later in the night mm.
0: so i uh, i don't know if you've experienced this or people in your lab or if you've heard this there have been times where i'll wake up in the morning and and let's say my my family's out doing something in the kitchen and i'm still asleep but i could hear them but i'm really i'm dreaming at the same time and there's been times where I will tell myself to wake up, you know, and I'm like screaming at myself, but I feel that paralyzed feeling and I can't wake myself up. Have you ever experienced or heard anything like that?
1: Yeah. So this is a pretty common um, phenomenon. It's a strange one. So this is called sleep paralysis. Uh, and it's, it's, um, it's a unique state. And to be honest, there's a lot that we don't understand about it. It is actually incredibly fascinating for, for a couple different reasons, but just in general, what is it? Uh, It's this sort of half wake, half sleep state um, where often coming out of REM sleep, your body will remain paralyzed, but you become conscious. And so you realize that you you are awake, but you're unable to sort of generate these motor signals to your muscles to move. So sometimes it's experiences feeling, feeling trapped right you, you just can't activate your body it's often an unpleasant uh, experience for most people but it's it's almost always benign it doesn't really have um, doesn't really mean anything bad so it's, it's relatively common particularly in children we don't know why uh, this might simply have to do with just that they're still developing brain networks so sometimes they get stuck in these half states this is just a hypothesis some people have uh, a lot of people get them as children and they tend to just kind of go away. Some people have them occasionally throughout life. Um, again, they're benign ex- with one exception. Uh, you will see it in narcolepsy. It's one of the common features of narcolepsy is to get these sleep paralysis episodes. Um, and very occasionally, especially later in life, uh, sort of a resurgence or a reemergence of sleep paralysis sometimes is a uh, a symptom of some neurodegenerative d- disease, like like a dementia. Mm. So it is something to pay attention to, but it's not necessarily um, you know a, a cause for alarm, particularly if you're if you're young and and otherwise healthy. Um, to me, actually, the most fascinating thing about sleep paralysis is um, most people experience these very common, you could call them hallucinations, where they feel like they are being watched or there's some intruder yeah, in the room. that's Very common, almost a universal experience. Uh, what's amazing about it is that it seems to be cross-cultural. Uh, cultures interpret this experience slightly differently. So in some cultures it'll be a demon in others it's a spirit in others it's a, a burglar, but there's always this feature of an intruder, a threat that you can't react to. So that often mm. it's, it's a, uh, So it's a threatening and unpleasant experience. Now, why there's this universal feature of it uh, is completely unknown. Nobody has an answer to this. It it is pretty amazing.
0: Yeah, it's wild. And part of me telling myself to wake up is sometimes I feel like somebody's walking on my bed. And it's so strange that I can hear everything going on in the kitchen, but I'm sleeping. And it's almost like like I'm crossing dimensions or something like that
1: yeah um one of the this is another of my favorite stories uh so I, I wish i had the study on hand um but some someone did do a retrospective analysis um i forget Ali did it i wish i remembered so but the, the way well ultimately what they found was that the majority of alien abduction stories of uh, reports particularly in the u.s mm. Were likely explained by sleep paralysis episodes, and you know, one, in, especially Americans, for whatever reason, uh, tend to interpret sleep paralysis episodes as a kind of abduction, and often an alien abduction.
0: Wow. Well, I don't think I was abducted, but maybe it happened, and they zapped my memory like the Men in Black. I don't know yeah. what happened there. Um, so, <laughs> you know, you you focus a lot on sleep deprivation and the relationship with pain. And the immune system. What are some major things that you've learned regarding both of those things?
1: Yeah, there, there's a lot we don't know. That's going to be a common theme and in, in everything. <laughs> I, keep, I know I keep saying that, but uh, the, the field of sleep science is actually relatively young. Um, I mean, REM sleep actually was only discovered in the 1960s, which is actually just mm-hmm. an amazing fact. I mean, we've only known that there's this unique brain state that everyone goes into every night for you know 60 years it's that's nothing um so there's a lot that we don't know but regards to sleep sleep and pain actually every almost everyone has understood that there is some connection ask anyone who's had you know a, a back spasm or back problems they have trouble sleeping people with chronic pain often report that um when they don't sleep well their pain is worse the next day so that people have long believed that there is some sort of reciprocal interaction here. The mechanisms are only very recently starting to get elucidated. So so we did a recent study on, on this um, where we took healthy younger adults. These are college students. So these are these are people who are free of pain. They're kind of the blank slate of experimental psychology. And we deprived them of sleep, and we tested their pain sensitivity. But crucially, we did this in the MRI scanner so that we could record their brain activity while they were processing that painful stimuli. Uh, And so, unsurprisingly, they were more sensitive to pain. But what we found that was really novel was that, actually, it was the activity in their brain that processes the pain that was altered. So, you know, loosely... Uh, to describe this, the the regions of the brain that initially register that incoming pain signal from the body, they were increased in activity. But the, these higher order regions of the frontal lobe um, and the limbic lobe, these two regions called the insula and the striatum, they were actually reduced in their activity after sleep deprivation. So this is a correlation in our study. So we, we weren't able to do sort of a causal manipulation that we couldn't really go into the brain, stimulate this region and say, okay, what does it do? What How does this change experience of pain? But the work in, in animals and some lesion work from humans suggests that these two regions, the insula and the striatum are important in regulating and interpreting pain. And I think most importantly in generating these descending signals that go from the brain to the spinal cord that are able to modulate and sometimes even block pain. So to take that together, sleep deprivation in the brain, at least in in our paradigm, amplifies that pain signal as it comes in, but it's sort of inhibited in its ability to manage that pain. And, the, and that, that ultimately leads to the experience that we saw, which is just increased pain. It was more unpleasant. So the sleep deprivation impacts how pain is processed in the brain, but there is in the body uh, a, a strong relationship with the immune system. This is, so this has also been known for a long time, that the immune system does a lot for, for pain processing, particularly in becoming sensitized. To pain. So immune cells are actually very similar to neurons. They, they release a lot of the same chemicals. You, the way I think about it is that immune cells speak the same language that neurons do. So they can release these chemicals uh, called cytokines. These are pro-inflammatory factors, and they are sensed by neurons in the body and, and actually also in the brain. And these cause all sorts of changes. Um, in the body, they tend to sensitize neurons. In, in other words, they become more active to the same stimulus. So, if I give you, if I, you know, put a, a if I shock your leg and that's painful, um, if I then sensitize these neurons with cytokines, that same that same stimulus at the same intensity will be uh, more painful. And that's simply because it's sending a greater signal. It becomes sensitized the immune system is one way that neurons are able to communicate with the rest of the body and respond to stimuli so there, there's this deep interplay between the immune system and pain mm. more recently though the this sleep system has come in as a third player here uh because it's been discovered how deeply connected the immune system is with sleep there this goes incredibly deep and I, I don't i don't I think I need to get into how deep that goes, but they, they basically co-evolved. Sleep and, and the immune system co-evolved. They also speak the same language. So you put these three together sleep pain and the immune system. One leading theory of of the relationship between sleep and pain is that sleep is impacting the immune system but also the brain. And you get kind of this this double hit on pain which which ultimately just leads to the experience of being more sensitive to pain and it feeling more unpleasant.
0: Mm. So I imagine with athletes, then if, you know, they, they lose sleep, especially consistently, they're not going to be able to perform through a certain amount of pain. And of course, pain is there to let us know that, Hey, something doesn't feel good. Sometimes we need to stop, but also sometimes we can keep going if it's just very, very minor pain. And, but with sleep deprivation, then the pain gets enhanced. So then I imagine their performance goes down as well.
1: Yeah, exactly. And, and pain is a, is a weird thing. It's, uh, I got interested in pain because for the same reason I got interested in sleep is that it's on the one hand, one of the most familiar universal experiences. But it, it, as soon as you just start to scratch the surface, it's completely mysterious. Uh, so, so as you say, pain is what is evolved to do is to send a threat signal. It says, it says, pay attention to this. This could be damaging, uh, and to avoid it, right? If you if you touch a hot stove, uh, that can damage you, and that's sensed, and then it tells your brain to you know, retract your hand. But pain is not always. It's not a one-to-one mapping. In other words, with uh, the actual threat of some stimulus, so some, sometimes pain is is pathological. You see this often in chronic pain states, Mm. where there isn't actually a one-to-one mapping between what's going on in in a muscle or a joint and the actual experience. Sometimes an injury can fully heal and you can still experience pain. And this process is going on. This is dependent on the brain. So Mm. this has nothing to do necessarily with the injury site anymore. It has to do with the brain. It's basically become hypersensitive to any signal coming from that region and interpreting it as pain. Mm. So sleep, I think is crucial for in the short term, dealing with pain, but I, th- I think even more important in the long term with avoiding that transition between an acute injury into a chronic pain state. And there's a lot of research going into this right now, uh, thinking about how sleep predicts who becomes chronic pain patient so it's not understood so huh. you can give two people the same injury now just this is just a hypothetical experiment you can give two people the same injury <laughs> and one person could go on to develop a lifelong chronic pain condition and the other won't we don't understand what's different about them uh, what protects one person and, and makes the other susceptible but sleep could be playing a role in really uh, protecting you or helping to resolve injuries in the long term.
0: Wow. And you're, correct me if I'm wrong, but sleeping helps your body heal physically. So it's absolutely crucial that children and even adults, of course, get ample amount of sleep when they're recovering from some kind of illness or some kind of injury.
1: Absolutely. So uh, as I said in the beginning, what sleep is doing is kind of a higher order process. It's it's coordinating all sorts of different mini processes in the body, and one of the things it's doing is releasing these growth factors, um, and these are so these are really important for children in particular because they are growing and developing. Uh, but for everyone else who's who's af- past that stage, also uh, in terms of healing. Okay, so there's there's a lot um, going on there. In fact, you can look at uh, the performance of the muscles just in terms of Force output uh, and prior sleep, and there there is a connection there. And one of the reasons, um, actually, bodybuilders have a big, they're on the forefront of a lot of things for for better and for worse. The one thing they've realized very early is that their their sleep is crucial for their performance and the building of muscle. And this is likely because it's allowing the body to heal from these micro injuries that you get from, for example, weightlifting or Or training.
0: Wow. So with children, do you feel as if if they're injured, they should really, really take that very seriously and parents as well and not letting them stay up and but they absolutely need to recover by sleeping?
1: Yeah, I think that's going to be one of the most important things in in the toolbox of of recovery. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think everyone knows a lot of you know, about pricing in the short term for recovery, heating, alternating heat and ice, you know, uh, anti-inflammatories for pain. Uh, but those, I think are, are, their effects are amplified by getting good sleep later because it really is a, is a, a resting and restorative period, not just for injuries, but for the whole body. Uh, and so I, I think, yes, in terms of af- athletics and athletic performance, you don't just need to think about what you're doing while you're training your, your training and optimizing your performance, even when you're not out on the field or, or on the court or, or in the gym. So your rest and your restoration is complementary to, you know, your, your training.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So there's this phrase and I, I want to hear your opinion because uh, I've read <laughs> read a, quite a bit about this, but this idea of I'll catch up on my sleep this weekend. Can you catch up on sleep ever if you lose sleep during the week?
1: I, I love this question. <laughs> I don't have, I'm going to have to say it again. This is not known. And in fact, there is a raging debate in the sleep field right now. Uh, it, it is really currently going on about whether you can – and should try to catch up on your sleep. And I have I have my opinion, I think it's shared by most people in my lab, um, that, well, in general, you should get as much sleep as you can and get it consistently. But understanding that the real world gets in the way with that occasionally. The question is, is it good or bad to sort of extend your sleep on the weekend? And I think it's pretty clear that that is a good thing, okay? It's it's good to get some extra sleep because you do accumulate a bit of a sleep debt. So it, let's say your sleep need, just to take an average, is eight hours a day. And you're only sleeping seven hours a night during the work week or school week. Okay, so over those five days, you've accumulated a sleep debt of five hours to to quote unquote, repay that sleep debt, you would have to sleep an extra two and a half hours on Saturday and an extra two and a half hours on Sunday. If you can do that, I think that's a good thing. And I think there's evidence to show this. I actually, the problem here is I don't actually don't think that's easy to do. No, <laughs> especially um, with children. <laughs> yeah, well, life gets in the way, but also this the sleep, the circadian system has has these rhythms. It's not trivial to just extend your sleep by three hours, even if you are tired, even if you are sleep deprived. Your circadian system is still going to activate and say, "Okay, I'm normally awake at nine a.m. on 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 Wednesday, so I should still be awake at nine a.m. on Saturday, even if I want to get those extra hours and sleep in." Mm-hmm. So there's a question of whether it's possible to really catch up on sleep. And I think the answer is it it probably isn't possible to truly catch up on accumulated sleep debt. Mm. So that's, but that is a separate question, I think from just general advice of if, if you can't do anything about, you know, getting enough sleep in the week, let's say you have a long commute and you will inevitably get some sleep debt. I think trying to get extra sleep on the weekend is a good thing but you have to realize it's not, it, uh, it's not perfect and it won't reduce the impact of getting short sleep during the week. So the, the, the way I think about this is it's just like diet, okay? Mm. You could eat really poorly for five days a week and if you ate really well on Saturday and Sunday, that would be better than <laughs> not eating well seven days a week. Right. But it's not, it's also not better from eating well every single day of yeah, the week. It's not optimal. And eating, eating well Saturday and Sunday doesn't reverse the damage of eating badly Monday through Friday. Now it helps, but it doesn't reverse it.
0: How do you feel about naps to catch up, even like weekday naps?
1: Yeah, naps are great. Uh, the only caveat I'd say to naps, which I almost universally, would recommend uh if people are having trouble sleeping and actually i think i'll come back to this i'd particularly uh recommend it to athletes so remind me to come back to that but the the caveat i want to say up front is that um for people with insomnia true you know diagnosed insomnia naps are probably not the right thing to do now it sounds counterintuitive right because someone's not sleeping enough yeah Naps give them sort of an extra opportunity to sleep Um, there, there's a reason to this. And actually, what happens is for someone, someone with insomnia, they have trouble falling asleep at night. If they nap, that makes it actually even harder to fall asleep at night. And with someone with insomnia, you really want to improve their nighttime sleep. That's the best quality sleep mm. they're going to get. So that's the only caveat for everyone else. Napping can be great for a variety of reasons. You, if it's just for catching up, you know, you only slept six or seven hours one night, but you're able to take a nap, that's excellent. And I recommend it as long as it's not too close to bedtime. Mm. Um, for athletes, what I wanted to say is for all, for all those previous reasons, you know, catching up on lost sleep, if you haven't, that's great. But for athletes, I think they particularly benefit um, from sleeping before, either before and or after training. So I, I, I wish I remembered the name. I, I, think it's, I think it's LeBron James who sort of swears by a nap before playing. And there's several sort of elite athletes who swear by taking a nap right before playing. And it's not because they're not getting enough sleep. And if if you, they actually look at their sleep, they, they're getting a lot. You know, nine hours for, for an adult is a lot of sleep. Now they're at the elite level so there's some different things going on there but they are doing this this sort of pre performance nap to really uh, optimize their performance um, both cognitively but also so physically so that would that's the benefit before training or performance but I think actually for a for someone who's younger someone who's still you know learning a sport for example uh uh, I think of like um, I'm a big fan of baseball. So so pitchers, when they're young, you know they've they've mastered maybe the fastball and the changeup, and they're they're at the age where they're going to start experimenting with some more complicated pitches that that really take a particular type of complicated body coordination. They're going to really benefit from taking a nap after training, and this is a benefit on memory processing, particularly for what's called procedural or motor memory processing. So it's, it's hugely important to the learning. Well,
0: do you have a length of time you recommend naps to go to like a maximum amount? And then also what's the, the latest somebody should be taking a nap before they uh, considering their bedtime.
1: Yeah. Um, it's it's tough. I, I don't think there's a minimum amount. I think uh, th- there's been studies that have shown benefits of naps as short as five or ten minutes. Mm. Um, so, you know, get it when you can. Squeeze them in. Uh, I think there is some discussion of what's too long. Um, and it's, I'd say less than an hour is probably what you want to go for. Um, some people might say less, you know, less than 30 minutes, but I, I think less than an hour is a good, good, um, rule mm. of thumb. But the reason why people say that is that there's not, it's not that there's a, uh, there's something detrimental about having a two hour nap. It's only that it interferes with sleeping at night. So it, just like someone with insomnia, it reduces that sleep pressure and it makes it harder to sleep at night. So you don't want to interfere with that nighttime sleep because that's going to be your best quality sleep. Um, but but na- napping can still be beneficial for, for other reasons. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I found for myself, if I take a nap, which is very rare because my son doesn't like to nap uh, for some reason, and even though I beg him, um, but so I find... If I'm after two o'clock at night or two o'clock in the afternoon, I think it's too late for me to nap. I've got a nap before that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, I don't know that that's been studied specifically, but that sounds about right. You definitely don't want to take a nap too close to bedtime. Mm-hmm. You'll just reduce that sleep pressure. It's just going to be harder to fall asleep later. Uh, I I think that's it's this is a rule of thumb. I, I can't say I can cite a study that says this. Uh, my intuition is saying, you know, at least uh, at least five or six hours before sleep would be sort of the minimum gap.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Probably, you know, more is better. Uh, but yeah, or I mean, if you look at what some cultures do that take a siesta nap as sort of this yeah. this deep part of their their culture they take it at a particular time. Now they're a little bit different in that they, they actually go to bed really late. Um, but they tend to take their naps right around 2 PM mm. approximately. Uh, and there is actually a reason for this. It's not just tradition. Um, there's this, uh, so there's basically this sort of, um, dip in your drive to be awake. It's called a mid afternoon dip. And it's, it's this fluctuation in the basically the melatonin rhythms that hey, we won't get into the mechanisms, not important, but on average, if someone's waking up around 8 a.m., around 2 p.m., there will be this dip. It's called the postprandial dip or the mid-afternoon dip. Um, and it's where people are sort of sleepiest in the middle of the day. So this is probably the best time to take a nap. Your body is sort of primed. To, to go to sleep, then it's it's far enough away from bedtime that um, it shouldn't interfere too much. Mm.
0: So I'm glad you brought up melatonin, uh, because I think a lot of people, they may not fully understand what the supplement does for you. So what are some considerations that you would advise people to take um, when they're taking melatonin and in a safe manner, and how much should they be taking and should they be taking it in, in certain circumstances?
1: Hmm. So this is tough and and people in the field will give you different answers. Uh, so I'll, I'll speak for myself here. I think almost always melatonin is is very safe. It's probably one of the safest supplements out there. Um, but the first thing I'll say is that Melatonin is in a little bit of a un- unique position in sort of the supplement world because it is both a hormone and a supplement. So I mean something very specific when I say supplement. Okay, it's not a drug in the sense that it's not regulated by the FDA. Okay. Hmm. Uh, and there there has been a, a study done where people basically randomly uh, – analyze different melatonin products on that you could buy, you know, over the counter. And there's a huge variation in the quality of them. Some of them have way more melatonin than the advertise. Some of them have way less melatonin than the advertise and whether they have more or less is also not consistent. So if I buy the same melatonin supplement in December and then buy it again in June, it may not even have the same amount, even though on the bottle, it says it should have three milligrams. Mm.
2: Um,
1: so this is not, this is a problem of policy, right? This, this is a problem across the supplements, uh, world. They're just, they're not regulated and they're not subject to the same, um, testing protocols that FDA regulated drugs are. So that's something to always keep in mind. Um, let's say that wasn't an issue and you, um, there, there, were, there were some good products in that in that paper. Uh, they were decent, at least, that were relatively consistent. So let's say you have that. How much should you take? When should you take it? Who should take it? Uh, I think is an open question. I think in general, people take way more melatonin than they really need. Uh, I've seen products that go as high as 12, 20 milligrams That's way too much. I don't think there's any reason to take that much melatonin. I think on average, you'll see them go around three to five milligrams. I also think that's way too much. Mm. Uh, I think maybe a milligram is probably a good amount, maybe even less. Um, I'd say start with less, and then if it does nothing, try a milligram. I I actually would really not go above three milligrams, um, which is a relatively low dose if you look at what these bottles show. Mm -hmm. The reason why is that three milligrams is an order of magnitude more than what your body produces naturally. So your body produces melatonin. When you take melatonin externally, you take a pill you're adding on top of your body's unproduced melatonin. So what that ends up doing is just like any drug, you get a tolerance. Your body will basically stop producing its own melatonin because it's getting this massive bolus of melatonin from your, from the pills. And so Just like with any other sleeping pill, if you do this too long, you suddenly stop, you're going to get this rebound effect where there'll be no melatonin in your system, and that can really interfere with your circadian rhythms. Mm. So the way to avoid this is to take it intermittently, to try to not take it every day, and to take a relatively low dose. Mm. So for um, the last thing I'll say is that uh, there is a lot of debate in the field about whether children... Um, should be taking melatonin now I don't think there are studies that have shown sort of a particular risk about it and I know a lot of parents really swear by it and I don't think it's particularly dangerous but um, it is an open question really what what long-term use of melatonin in children does to sleep later in life this is is not known and so I usually defer to um, what David Dinges Professor David Dinges at uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania, who's sort of an expert on, on this, says he actually does not recommend melatonin for children um, for the simple reason is that it's a hormone, the sleep systems are still developing in children, uh, and that it's, so he sides with, um, with safety, with not recommending it for children. But there are these products, you know, little gummies for children. They're advertised for children, well, for parents to give to their kids, that I think is uh I don't know quite the right word they're not exactly dangerous, but <laughs> I, I don't I don't think it's it's uh, a good thing because these are unregulated supplements. Yeah. I think we should be a lot more hesitant to to give things like this to our children,
0: yeah, for sure now, does melatonin help people stay asleep, or does it just
1: help them get to sleep I think well, complicated again. I think it, it, in general, melatonin is sort of one of the prime sig- signaling molecules of the circadian rhythm. So it is involved in the timing of sleep. So the, the best use of melatonin is for jet lag. And that would be probably one of the prime times to use it. Is anyone traveling across time zones um, and, and doesn't have time to adapt naturally a melatonin supplement at the right time can, can really help with that. Uh, and there's a lot of evidence to show that it's it's probably the best thing to do for, for jet lag. Um, so, But with it, what this tells us that what melatonin is doing is it's affecting the timing. So you think of the sleep-wake cycle as this kind of oscillation across the day. And what melatonin does naturally or in the form of a pill is sort of shift where in time the peak of that rhythm occurs, is it earlier or, or later? So in some people, if they have, for example, a misaligned circadian rhythm, so their circadian rhythm is telling them to go to sleep at a time when they're actually awake, so this would be a misalignment. Melatonin can sometimes help realigning that, but it also needs a behavioral intervention. So you really need, do need to commit to going to sleep you know, at, at the right time every day, doing that consistently. There is a lot of debate. I, I think there's some relatively weak evidence that's, that melatonin might help people just having trouble sleeping. But I don't think it's a good long-term solution.
0: Awesome. So you, you, know, you spoke just now about children. And something you said earlier in the interview you wanted to get back to was the change of time when adolescents normally should be falling asleep versus children as well. Can you talk about that?
1: Yeah, it's particularly in adolescence. So this, this is perfect timing because we were just talking about the circadian rhythm, which is this, this oscillation, right. In, in melatonin and and other molecules. Uh, it's basically an oscillation of your sleep wake drive when it's, when you're meant to be awake, when you're meant to be asleep. And normally, Normally, you know, the middle-aged adult, this is supposed to align to the oscillations of the sun. So day-night cycles. Um, what happens in adolescence, uh, the reasons for this are, there are some hypotheses for why this evolved. But in adolescence, you see a shifting of this rhythm so that they tend to be awake later in the night, which means that they, they'll wake up later. So this, this myth actually of the, the lazy teenager who <laughs> sleeps all the time and sleeps in extremely late, uh, is a myth that needs to die. They're not lazy. <laughs> there's, there's really a biological component for why teenagers sleep in and stay up late there. There's this, this shift in the rhythm that tells them to do this. Why this is, is not exactly clear. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't think people know sort of in the body what really triggers this. It certainly has something to do with all the changes going on in, during puberty. Uh, but psychologists have, have thought that this is actually one mechanism to really kind of push the teenager out of the nest is it, it actually just misaligns their rhythm to that of their, their home group or their, 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 uh, their family. Mm. And it's the way that evolution has kind of pushed them out of the nest and forced them to be a little bit more independent just by t- changing the timing of when they're asleep versus when they're awake. This is again, an un untested, maybe untestable hypothesis, but it is a, an interesting one. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I, I remember definitely needing to sleep longer when I was a teenager, but from what I remember also, high school started earlier than elementary school and middle school did. So for these teenagers to have to wake up at 5, 5.30, even 6 in the morning to get to school by 7 just doesn't seem like it is going to help them learn and retain that information that you were talking about earlier.
1: I completely agree. Uh, I think it's a crime that schools start so early. Uh, It's not only unpleasant, it's truly dangerous and detrimental. And there has been a lot of push recently in the policy world to change school start times with some success. Uh, But I think the evidence is unequivocal that particularly for high school, um, early school start times are bad for students and they're bad for many reasons. So, Uh, One of the most powerful studies I've seen, I think, came out of a a Minnesota school system. And it it was a really unique study. Basically, they took two school districts in the same time zones that generally pulled from a a very similar population. Uh, And so you can think of this as kind of a a pseudo randomization where one school district uh, delayed their school start time to like 9 a.m. Oh, wow. Still probably too early, to be totally <laughs> honest. Uh, the other kept there at probably 8 a.m. or 8.30 a.m. So, and then they just measured all sorts of things about these students over the next maybe year, year or two. Uh, the thing that received the most attention was just that the test scores. So the students who had a later school start time had improved test scores and SATs. They had reduced behavioral problems. Um... So less expulsions, for example, it, with school, later school start times. Um, but the two, I think, most powerful findings from that study, uh, which really sh- should tell us that we need to change our, our policy here, is that the two biggest killers of, of teenagers in the United States are suicides and car accidents. Mm-hmm. And both of these were reduced by reducing school start times. Wow. That's amazing.
0: Yeah. And I, I think the more parents push and gather together and and push the school districts and the state uh, department of education with these studies, that's really has, that's going to be the only way to make change.
1: Agreed. And I I would want to give just a a lot of credit to, um, to my advisor, Matt Walker, um, who's also here at Berkeley. He's he's actually done a lot of work in California uh, with, I'd say mixed success, but not not because of all the work he's put in and actually trying to shift uh, the the school start times and using you know scientific evidence to really inform policy. There's a lot of pushback on this from a variety of, of sources, um, surprisingly from parents actually, and and the reason why is, is unfortunate. It's simply that you know if a school schedule shifts and then becomes misaligned from the work schedule. So this really needs to be kind of a, a a widespread shift. And I think not only will students benefit, but you know I think everyone will benefit from getting a little bit extra sleep.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I can imagine also if there's an idea if school gets pushed later, then sports after school also gets pushed later, then it has an effect on dinner and they can keep going with excuses after that but it seems like it should be enough with a lower suicide rate and lower car accident rate among teenagers that that should be enough to make change
1: i agree and you know i'm, I'm just wondering out loud right now is is with uh this uh the pandemic and everyone doing schooling from home at least uc berkeley now is as chosen to do um, a fully online fall semester. And I know things are still being worked out for high school and middle schools um, to what extent they'll be remote, but if they are remote in either a, a hybrid setting or fully remote, you know, this would be a great time to experiment with changing mm-hmm. the uh, start times because it's so easy to do. Everyone's at home.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, there's no more commuting than the kids and parents have to do anymore. So it would be great. Now, you mentioned uh, earlier as well about sleep habits and sleep hygiene. What are some tips, maybe top 10, 20, however many you have for parents to help their children develop good sleep habits?
1: Yeah, so uh, habits, I think, is the key word. So consistency is probably the most important thing so anytime you have to, you, ch- you change your, your habits, that's difficult. There's a transition period. But being consistent, which unfortunately is re- requires a little bit of discipline from you know, both a parent and a, and a child to, to try and be relatively strict about bedtime and wake-up time. is um, probably the s- simplest and best thing. Uh, that's because sleep quality also depends on sleep timing. And that timing is something that's built and solidified over time um, with a consistent sleep schedule. So, consistency is probably one of the, the most important things. Um, the other thing that's, I think, relatively easy, maybe not so much nowadays. Uh, with everyone being from home and working on screens, is to reduce light at night. I think, particularly with children, this is really important because um, they're really activated by screens. Mm-hmm. Um, so, reducing light, particularly blue light, uh, for at least an hour before bed, you know, more is better, it, uh, is really important to me. Think about how sleep evolved. You can really see how our, the way that our kind of industrialized mechanized society, it it really works against our sleep system. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, we evolved, our sleep system evolved in the world without electric lights, without electricity and, and, um, constant distractions. So people's rhythms were aligned to Day light, temperatures and light cycles and so they would go to bed a couple hours after the sun went down and wake up when the sun came up and so we're very disconnected from that now i don't think it's possible in the modern world to go back to that um, but what that tells you is that, that that's what our bodies evolved for so the closer you can get to simulating that to having the consistency that the sun would normally give you to having the darkness at night that the, the sun going down would normally give you, all of that is going to work together to improve the quality of your sleep. Mm-hmm. So all these kind of fall under the umbrella of sleep hygiene. Um, there's several other things, but I, I do want to mention my personal favorite. I, I found a lot of success with this. Uh, and I, I think it's a good one for a couple of reasons, which is a hot shower at night. Right. Um, it's, a, it's a very simple one. And, um, I, I actually just love it because it works well for me personally. Some people i I know have mixed luck with it, but it's an easy thing to try and it has a little bit of biology behind why it works. So sleep is tied to temperature cycles, as I just mentioned. And actually the drop in temperature when the sun goes down is an important cue in telling your body that it is time to prepare for sleep. So, um, you can do an experiment. For example, if you, if you warm up someone's bed, um, people have done this in sleep labs, they, their sleep will be worse. It'll take them longer to fall asleep. But if you cool off their bed, they fall asleep much quicker and they sleep better. So there's this, this dependency of temperature. So what a hot shower does is a little bit paradoxical. Uh, if you take a hot shower, as long as it's not too long of a hot shower, it basically heats up the your skin um the outside of your body this causes a dilation of the peripheral blood vessels so heat actually leaks out from the inside out
0: huh.
1: um, and you get a, a paradoxical cooling of your core body And that's the cue that your body is really measuring to tell it when to go to sleep so as long as you don't spend you know 30 minutes in a hot shower you know keep it to maybe five ten minutes of a, of a good hot shower to really just warm up the skin when you get out and that water evaporates, you cool off the inside of your body. And that uh is a I, I have found a relatively effective way to to cue your body um to prepare for sleep. Mm.
0: So now for me personally and probably a lot of people out there, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night and I start coming up with these brilliant ideas that just won't quiet down what do you recommend for people who wake up in the middle of the night and can't go back to sleep right away?
1: Yeah, uh, it's a tough one. uh, And, and I've certainly experienced it. So there's, I think it depends a little bit, uh, on, on how frequently this is happening and whether it's sort of becoming a, uh, either it, either if it's, if it's a center of insomnia or, or the development of insomnia, um, First of all, this happens to everybody all the time. So I think the first thing I always say is to be forgiving, actually, to yourself. And a lot of people have this tendency, especially when they start to learn about how important sleep is, that they get very anxious about anything that impacts their sleep. I got to say that everyone has trouble sleeping from time to time, and and as long as it's a you know uh, an intermittent thing, mm. don't don't need to worry about it. And sometimes worrying about it. Um, makes the problem worse so you know just try to go back to sleep maybe try some meditation uh, if that helps you that would be the first thing but if this is happening every night then sometimes a different strategy is needed so uh in some forms of in, of insomnia you do get this um, sort of midnight wake up and you have trouble falling back asleep for people like that, it it, ha- it the recommendation is actually to get up out of bed, to leave the bed, mm-hmm. to do something relaxing, you know, preferably without a lot of light. Um, and, and there's a reason why is because this relates back to this this issue of over worrying about sleep. Mm-hmm. So in insomnia, one of the issues is that people form this association of the bed or the bed setting with not sleeping well.
2: Mm. And
1: one of the most successful treatments for insomnia is, is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia. And one thing they do in this type of therapy is to break that association between being awake and being in bed. And so one of the recommendations is, you know, to never, it's well, Another way of saying this is to only use your bed for sleep. It's a privileged place for sleep. If you're awake, don't be in bed. To really only associate uh, sleep with the bed. So if you wake up in the middle of the night and you can't go back to sleep, you know, don't worry too much about it. Get up, do something to relax, uh, and then when you're sleepy again, return to the bed. But don't sit in bed, forcing yourself to try and sleep. Um, if you're really struggling because all that does is form this association between being awake and being in bed, which can ultimately makes the problem worse in the long term. Mm.
0: So how do you feel about having some kind of device in the room of children and adolescents?
1: Yeah, I think there's uh it's probably not recommended, right. Particularly too close to bed. Um, I guess for a couple of different reasons. I mean, the one we already talked about, which is just the light. So our, our screens produce a lot of blue light, and blue light is what's is really what's driving melatonin rhythms. So if you get too much light, at, blue light at night, you inhibit melatonin, you delay its onset, and you fall asleep later. So I think that's the sort of the proximal reason for why you wouldn't want it. But but also just psychologically, screens devices are highly activating; they demand our attention. Uh, and when you're preparing for sleep, you need to kind of get into that, that mindset of letting go of the day, of relaxing, not of activating. The worst thing you can do, I'll speak for myself, the worst thing I can do before bed is to read the news on my phone or the computer <laughs> Yeah. So, I mean, that's an extreme example, but it, it's not just the light. Light is bad, but it's, you know, it's the attention demanded from it that's really um, counterproductive.
0: Yeah, what you're consuming can keep you up for a long time, that's for sure. Uh, do you have any final bits of advice for parents who are raising athletes, uh, especially regarding sleep?
1: Uh Yeah. I mean, I would say uh, in general, I guess this really goes for all age groups uh, is to make room for sleep um, and to to understand it's important. So sleep is good for athletes for the same reasons it's good for everybody else. Uh, But I think athletes, particularly younger athletes get a particular benefit from it because they're demanding a lot of their brains and their bodies. So they can really sort of optimize their performance when they need it by getting enough sleep uh, because of their sort of increased demands of their athletics, but also just because of that period of life, um, which is very sensitive to sleep. So it it is actually known that the sleep you get as an adolescent will predict your quality of life decades later, particularly your sleep decades later. So it's a, it's a really important Mm. window of life to, to make room for healthy habits, particularly healthy sleep habits. Mm.
0: Wow, that's really powerful, Adam. Thanks so much for your time. If uh, you know, I'd like to put it out there that I feel like this was should go as towards credit of defending your dissertation. So, <laughs> you know, I look forward to uh, being able to call you Doctor Kraus someday and uh, wish you luck and during this period and everything else you have going on in your future.
1: Okay, great! Thanks for having me. It's been fun.
0: All right, I hope you enjoyed this episode with Adam as much as I did. It's so informative, so many amazing bits of information there related to sleep. Now, for me, the most impactful thing, no doubt, is what he said at the end, and that is the sleep that an adolescent gets can affect the quality of their life in the future. Like, Wow, that is so powerful to hear. One big thing for me is to really caution against devices in the bedroom, especially at nighttime and especially for younger children because that just develops into a habit from when they become adolescents and then become adults. And the best way to teach your child good sleep habits and hygiene is for you to lead by example. So practice yourself. If you have any feedback, I'd love to hear from you. And in case you didn't know that I am a transformative life coach and I work with individuals virtually and in small groups as well and do workshops, you can get a hold of me, Gabe, at aclearmind.com. And you can check out my website, aclearmind.com, for a little bit more about me and what I can do for you. So Thanks for listening. If you like this episode or any of the other ones, I ask that you please rate and review the podcast on your favorite platform. I know on Apple Podcast, if you are on the page with the episode list, just scroll to the bottom and you can put however many stars you feel like I deserve and write a nice review on there as well. So again. You can always get a hold of me, Gabe, G-A-B-E, at aclearmind.com. And as always, I wish you much love to you and many blessings.